morning, everyone. Good. Uh, my name is Luke from earlier. Uh, I am uh, here, and uh, it is my joy and pleasure to open and teach God's Word to you this morning. So uh, let's get right into it. Uh, we are going to be in Psalms chapter 1 today, okay? Psalms chapter 1, uh, it is the first chapter in Psalms, and uh, it is an avenue of types into the whole of the book of Psalms, which is a wonderful book of the prayers of the Israelite people to the Lord God. And uh, being inspired scripture, it uh, shows us many ways that we can pray to God. They're emotion-filled, sometimes with the highest of joys, sometimes in the lowest of lows. Um, and it is a, a prayer book. So um, I'm going to read from Psalm 1. We'll talk about it for a little bit. And then uh, we'll explore deeper into Psalm 1, uh, into, the old, uh, into the New Testament. Okay? So that's what we're going to be doing this morning. So let's begin in Psalm 1-1. So if you are able, would you please stand in reverence to the Word of God as it's read? Psalm chapter 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for uh, the blessing that it brings. I just pray that as we study it this morning, that you would guide our steps, that you would open our eyes and our ears to see and to hear, that we would um, come to know you more and more through this reading of your word and discussion about it. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So Psalm chapter 1. Blessed is the man who, to say it positively, blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord, and on it he meditates day and night. Or to say it negatively, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of the sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So right from the beginning, we get this distinction between the righteous and the wicked, and what the righteous does and what the wicked does. The righteous delight in the law of the Lord and the sayings of the Lord. And the wicked, well, they walk in their own counsel. They walk in their own way and they sit with scoffers. Now, scoffing is sort of like a judgment, um, but not a proper judgment, but a sarcastic, dismissive judgment that makes light of what's brought before it. That's not the way the Lord. And so there's this distinction. There's the wicked, there's the righteous, and the righteous delight in the Lord. Now, there's a simile here in verse 3 that the one who delights in the law of the Lord is like a tree. Very strong. Uh, I remember uh, when I was coming up, there was this very sad event that happened very close to my house um, when I was in the fourth or fifth grade. Uh, there was a car that 
was driving down a country road and hit a tree running about 55, 60 miles an hour. The car was destroyed. Now, the tree had a patch of bark knocked out of it like that. And I still drive by that tree when I'm going to my parents' house, and the tree's still doing fine. There's a difference between a tree that's grounded, it's got real root, and how it describes the wicked. The wicked are like chaff that's just blown away. Just wherever the wind goes, that's where the chaff goes. Wherever the wind goes, that's where the wicked go. Wherever culture blows, that's where the wicked go. What was right 20 years ago? Well, if culture says it's right or culture says it's wrong, they're just going to blow along with it, right? Whatever is happening, it's all good. Wherever the wind blows, that's where we are. Not so the way the righteous. The way the righteous is grounded by the river. Its leaf does not wither. It bears fruit in its season. It does everything that a tree should do, right? The, the wicked are chaff. It's already dead. It's already plucked. It's already discarded. It's already blown away by the wind. Where it goes, no one cares. But the way of the righteous is grounded and good and solid because it's grounded in his word. Verse 5, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, which is to say it will last forever. He doesn't lose track of it. The Lord does not lose track of the righteous. He doesn't lose track of the way of the righteous. But the way of the wicked will perish. It will come to nothing. It is here, but it will be no more. It will come to an end. It will come to death. And that's Psalm 1. And you say, wow, that's good. But there's a problem, isn't there? Because I can speak to myself. I have not always delighted in the law of the Lord. I've not always been righteous, as Scripture defines righteousness. Righteousness is to be right in line with God's moral character, with God's laws, with God's decrees. Um, I use this illustration frequently with the youth. Um, a, a wall is an example of um, something that's upright. Um, I used to do some landscaping, and we'd go to a place that was a little rougher part of town, and I'd look up, and um, there were houses that were foreclosed and probably had been foreclosed for a long time, and um, due to lack of care, they began to get a little slant to them. And you would never let anyone you cared about stay in a place like that. Why? Because gravity one day will bring the whole thing toppling down. Because the walls are not upright, because it's not sturdy, it's all kind of bent to the side. And that's the some, sometimes that's how our morality gets. Like, well, it's not as slanted as that guy. It doesn't matter. It's not upright. If the Lord's righteousness is straight up and down, it's strong, it's sturdy. Throughout the Psalms, it's called a fortress or a strong wall, dependable and protecting. And our righteousness, our, our morality, it lets people down, right? We only go so far as to... Uh, help people, and then as soon as it feels like we should benefit from somewhere else, we're not as dependable anymore. We're not the Lord. We're not as grounded, not dependable. So, I can't say that I'm perfectly righteous. I can't say that I've always delighted in the law of the Lord. And can you? 
And so does that disqualify us from the blessing? Well, let's flip over to Matthew chapter 5. This is, if you're familiar with it, the Sermon on the Mount. And as I've noticed as I've been studying Psalm chapter 1, the Sermon on the Mount takes a lot of the ideas from Psalm chapter 1, and it picks them up, and it explores them in a way. Matthew chapter 5 through 7 is also one of those places. That's a great intersection in Scripture. Um, But I'm going to read from verse 17 through 20 in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You see, there was something that was going on in Jesus' day. The law of the Lord was constantly taught, but taught in such a way that it was accessible. And I don't mean that in like accessible to hear or see, but to do. They had changed God's law, or they had interpreted it in such a way that the people who were teaching it were somehow righteous, and the people who were often listening were somehow not righteous. And it wasn't an honest interpretation of what Scripture said. It was tainted by self-righteousness, by the leaders in their day saying, I believe this is not talking about my sin, Clearly, there's something that's not being understood properly, so I'm just going to explain it away, or that's not really an important law. That's not really an important law. If if you really look at it, I'm doing this right or that right, and God's definitely okay with my righteousness. And Jesus says, you can't do that. And I'm not coming to abolish the law. There are lots of people now who will say, well, we'll just take the Old Testament and we'll get rid of it because Jesus is here and we don't need the Old Testament anymore. Well, Jesus didn't come to abolish the Old Testament. He came to fulfill it. So we can't get rid of it because then how do we know what Jesus is here to fulfill? So the Sermon on the Mount, it starts with blessings, right? Uh, Starting in verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the pure in heart, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, blessed are those who, when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So Jesus has been delighting in the law of the Lord. And as he reads it, he expands on the blessing in Psalm 1. Psalm 1's blessing is very open, right? Just blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord. What does that look like? Well, here Jesus expands on that a little bit. Things that we don't value. Meekness, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, um, being poor in spirit, to, to be merciful, to be pure in heart. That's what Jesus said, blessed is that man. And then he goes on to say, don't get rid of the Old Testament. I'm fulfilling the Old Testament. And then he goes on to say from there, he gives an explanation of the law. And it's easy to dial back the law a little bit, be like, well, okay, so I haven't committed adultery. I haven't murdered. I 
haven't stolen anything in a long time since I was a kid, so I think I'm good. But Jesus says, well, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I say to you, if you look at a woman with lust, you've committed adultery in your heart. You've heard it said, don't murder, but I say, if you hate someone with evil intent, or if you call your brother a fool, you've committed murder in your heart, and you're liable to judgment. And he goes on from there, just saying, what the, where we think that we can self-justify, he says, it's not so simple. You can't bring down God's righteousness to be close to your angle, it, it stands on its own. We can't bend God's righteousness to conform to our righteousness. We have to be changed to be more like his. So we say, all right, Luke, you're not making it any easier. You're making it more difficult. Just explaining what it says. So how can we have life? Can we have blessing? Can we have this blessing? Well, this is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 12. He said, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, so also do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Enter the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits." Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and, and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Now, why did Jesus have authority? Well, I say because he was the, the Son of God, the Lord over all. But his argument is that he's speaking with the authority of Scripture, right? He says, this is the law that you should do to others is what you would like to have done to yourself and that you should enter by the narrow gate. Wide is the gate and easy is the way that leads to destruction. But narrow is the gate and hard and there are few that will find it. What does that mean? 
Well, I think of it like two inverse funnels, right? The world will promise you sin and all its multiplicity and say that is true freedom. You can do whatever you want. You can be whatever you want. You can say whatever you want. Sin is freedom, that's what they say. But while it starts very wide, it ends very narrow. The end of all of those things is and always has been and always will be death. Christ, on the other hand, is a funnel that starts extremely narrow. There is one entrance point. The gate is very narrow. It is Jesus Christ. If you enter into Jesus Christ, you will have eternal freedom. You will have freedom forever and ever. You will have joy forever and ever. That's the promise. The Lord says that I have unending joy at my right hand. Pleasures forevermore. In Christ. In Christ, we have freedom to have joy when our circumstances physically would tell us that joy is impossible. In Christ, we can be content whether we're poor or whether we're rich. In Christ, we can have peace. Peace that surpasses all understanding in Christ. But if you're in sin, while the sin holds, you're good. When it falls apart, not if, but when it falls apart on you, you fall into despair because that's where your hope was. So in Christ, there's life. In sin, there's death. And he says also, be careful of the teaching. Be careful who teaches you. And he comes back to the tree metaphor from Psalm 1. Who bears fruit? Who is grounded, whose leaf doesn't wither, the one who delights in the law of the Lord. Someone pretends to delight in the law of the Lord, they can't pretend to have good fruit. You should judge someone by their fruit. If someone claims to be a teacher and there's no fruit in their life, if they're not bearing fruit, then they're not delighting in the law of the Lord. So Jesus says, you can see the fruit in my life. You can see that I'm speaking with authority, unlike the scribes and the Pharisees, who were not speaking from authority, they were speaking from a place of self-justification, which is a fragile foundation. You're constantly trying to change what other people think of you because who's the judge? You say other people are the judge. And other people's opinions change. So your foundation's always changing. But not so with Christ. Christ is a rock. And if you trust in his unchanging word, you are like a wise man who builds his house on a rock. And when the storm comes, and the storm always comes, say you get all the way through life and no storms ever. What do you think death is? It's a massive storm that rips your soul from your body. What can protect you then? The words of Christ. The rock of ages. If we build our life in Christ, we will never be moved, no matter how fierce the storm will never be moved. And the crowd realizes this is someone with authority. This is someone who actually knows what they're talking about. So 
Jesus has already called his disciples. We'll jump forward in the story of Matthew. I won't read from it, but I'll paraphrase it in Matthew 16 and 17. They're on a boat. Jesus has just performed a miracle, fed thousands of people, and Jesus says, be careful of the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees. Be careful of their leaven. And the disciples said, oh, we lost, we left the bread. We had extra bread, now we left it. And Jesus is like, you have little faith. You don't realize what I'm talking about. And then they realized he's talking about the teaching. Then it jumps to Caesarea Philippi. And Jesus says, who does everyone say that I am? And they say, well, some people say you're Elijah. Some people say that you're um, one of the prophets, come back to life. Some say John the Baptist. He says, who do you say that I am? Peter says, you're the Christ. You are the Christ. You're the son of God. Jesus says, on that rock, I'll build my church. He also says, blessed are you, Simon. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. The blessing is on you. Flesh and bone did not give that to you, but my father from heaven. The spirit taught him that. So, so, so now Peter's under the blessing. Now, has he got it all figured out? Well, let's see. Next, next story. Okay? So, Jesus then says, I'm going to die and be resurrected. Peter says, okay. Now that I'm in the group, now that I'm in the group, and I've confessed you as Lord, um, Jesus, I feel like I have the right to tell you that you're wrong. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. If Peter had been reading his Old Testament, if he had been delighting in his scripture, he would have known. He would have known what the prophets say about the Messiah. That confessing Jesus is the Messiah is to say that the Messiah will die and be resurrected. It's in the Old Testament. It's all over the place. It's in Isaiah. It's in the Psalms. It's in the other prophets. Jesus says, you, you don't know. You don't know, Peter. Then Jesus takes him up on the mountain. Jesus is transfixed before his eyes. Peter somehow beholds the glory of Jesus as incarnate God, and he's on his face, and Moses is there, the law is there, and Elijah is there, and the prophets are there, this physical representation of how all of Scripture is pointing to Jesus. All of the law, personally, all of the prophets, personally, are saying he's the one. Peter's like, this is great. We should stay here forever. The father says, this is my son. Do what he says. It's not for Jesus to stay on the mountain with three people. So they come down. Peter's like, okay, got that one wrong again. Jesus again tells them, I'm going to die and be resurrected. And they're like, I don't understand this. But it's in the scriptures. Had they delighted in the scriptures, they would have known this. To such a point that we'll flip over to Matthew 26. Um, and we look at the Lord's Supper. Right? Jesus takes this incredible idea of Passover, this incredibly large Old Testament festival that everyone participates in. It's the law that everyone participates in it. The celebration that God in the time of Egypt had passed over the Israelites, not because they were righteous, not because they were sinless, but because they had the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. And the angel of death had passed over and visited death on the Egyptians, setting his people free. And so in this festival, Jesus says, hey, you know the feast that you have in the time of Passover? That points to me. 
My body will be broken. My blood will be poured out. I'm the ultimate fulfillment of the Passover. And they're like, what are you talking about? Jesus says, I'm going to be given over to the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious leaders, and they are going to crucify me. He quotes from Zechariah 13, and he says, the shepherd will be struck and all of the sheep will scatter. And Peter says, not me. Though you say it, Jesus, though scripture says it, not me. Jesus says, you're arguing with me? The Messiah, the son of God, and you're arguing with scripture now? Before morning comes, before the sun comes up, so the sun had gone down and all the roosters were asleep. So before the sun comes up, and the roosters start crowing again tomorrow morning, you will deny me three times. So, how is Peter under this blessing? He doesn't delight in the law of the Lord. He doesn't know who Jesus is. Like, he knows who Jesus is, but he doesn't understand who Jesus is. Right? So if the the take-home from Matthew 5 through 7 is enter through the narrow gate, have a relationship with Jesus... Here we see in Peter's life, we should read our scripture so that we actually understand who Jesus is, right? There are lots of people who thought they knew what the Messiah was, a leader who was going to kill all the Romans, this or that. Everyone had their own idea for what God was going to do. How do you know what God's idea is? He shared it. He told us the Messiah was one that was going to give his life a ransom for many, Isaiah 53, right? All we like sheep have gone astray, each one to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity or the unrighteousness of us all. And Jesus says in John 14, five through seven, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one can come, no one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. That's a very exclusive claim to relationship with the Father. That's a very exclusive claim to our relationship with the Creator. Jesus says, I am the way. The world says, Whoa, that's too narrow a gate. Broaden it up. Open it up wider. Allow other people to be the way. We can't because it wouldn't be true. You see, the religious leaders were on the same way as everyone else. They thought they were better because they were in the slow lane, because they had their seatbelt buckled and they were going the speed limit. But they're still on the way to destruction. They'd look over on the left lane. They see people screaming down the road 150 miles an hour, head out the window, swerving in between uh, lanes. And they say, that person is headed to death. Yes. But so is the Pharisee. So is the self-righteous. They're still on the way. They're still going in that direction. You need to be on a different way. And Thomas panics. He says, if you don't go, if you leave us, how will we know the way? Jesus says, I am the way. How do we know what the way looks like? We read scripture. We, we study scripture to know who Jesus is. So are we sure that's the case? Well, let's look, look over at Luke chapter 24. In Luke chapter 24, Jesus has been crucified and he has risen again on the third day, just like the scriptures say and just like what he says. 
Even though Peter didn't want it to happen, it was good that it happened. It was the plan of God. And what does Jesus say here? He meets up with a group of two disciples, not part of the 12, but part of the larger following of Jesus, who are leaving Jerusalem, going back home. After the events of Passover and the events of Jesus' crucifixion and rumors of Jesus' resurrection, they don't know what to believe. They're very confused. They don't know what to hold on to. They don't know what, they're blown about by the wind. And Jesus comes up in verse 25, and he says, and he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. What an incredible Bible lesson that must have been. Okay, so these guys, they're being blown around by the wind. Their rabbi, their teacher had just been crucified. There are reports that he's come back from the dead. They don't know what to believe. News is everywhere. There's news, there's fake news, there's everything. All right, and they're just like, all right, guess we'll go home. And then Jesus is walking with them. They don't recognize him. Their eyes are kept from seeing him, which is interesting because they don't see him in scripture. And so they, it's beautiful that they can't physically recognize him because they don't recognize who he is in scripture. So they're walking with him and Jesus is like, hey, what's going on? They're like, you live under a rock? Are you not aware of the things that are happening? The one called Jesus who was crucified, the reports that he's resurrected, Jesus like, how slow are you to believe? Have you not read? Have you not been delighting in God's word? It's abundantly clear. It's right there. They're like, well, I guess we're ashamed to say that we haven't been delighting in God's word. I guess it's, we haven't been looking for him there. And so Jesus gives them a whole lesson, starting with the beginning of the Bible, all the way through the prophets, pointing to himself. It's a long journey. I'm sure they enjoyed it. They sit down, Jesus breaks the bread, their eyes are opened. He's the Passover lamb. He's the one who broke his body for us. He's the way, he's the narrow gate. And he was right in front of us this whole time. And they say, didn't our hearts burn within us when he talked to us? Didn't our hearts burn within us when he was there? And Jesus vanishes. And do the guys continue home? No, they run back. They're like, we know the way now. It was explained to us through scripture. All they needed was a good Bible lesson. Their eyes were opened to the truth of who Jesus was, who he is. So, well, what about Peter? Been kind of hard on him today. as if I'd be any better, probably be worse. What do we see of Peter? Well, in his last book, in 2 Peter, chapter 1, let me read it. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. That's incredible. In Christ, we have everything 
that pertains to life and godliness. Through the narrow gate, in the way, we have everything that pertains to life and godliness. We do not have to look away from Jesus for anything. He provides it all. No amount of contentment, no amount of joy, no amount of happiness that we can find outside of Christ is necessary because in him we have all of those things completely. Not only that, but we have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, and it's kept in heaven for us. This way is going somewhere. The way of sin is going nowhere. It's going to death. It's going to destruction. It's going to undoing. It's not saying that you're unconscious at the end of it, but you're conscious for the undoing. That's what hell is. It's like you're conscious through your death. Forever and ever. It's the path that you've chose. It's destruction. But in Christ... We have an inheritance that is incorruptible. Nothing can corrupt it. Nothing can defile it. It's an eternal living hope. It's an active hope. It's not a passive hope, but it's an active hope, which means it keeps growing and producing more and more hope for us. It never runs out. 1 Corinthians 13, 13 says that these three abide, faith, hope, and love, that they will keep on keeping on. That will never run out of love, will never run out of hope, never run out of faith. They just keep on keeping on. So Peter says, in Christ, we have everything. He goes on to say, I'm going to jump down to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 12. Actually, uh, we'll start in verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy." And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with, with the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed. Oh, I'm reading the wrong chapter. It's really good though. I was like... I don't remember any of my points in here. I'm in 1 Peter. I'm sorry. I've been in 1 Peter this whole time. Okay. Now I'm over time. That's all right. 1 Peter was really good too. It's from Peter and it was saying all the things that I said. So it's a good thing that I took up the whole of Scripture as my point for today because wherever I land, it'll just agree. You know? Sorry about that. All right. Verse 2 Peter chapter 1 actually says, you were probably reading it like that. What translation is he reading, Run. First Peter translation, that's what it was. All right. 
His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us precious and very great promises, so that through him you might become partakers in the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Which is the same thing as having an undefiled hope. It agrees with one another. In Christ, we have everything. Okay, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 12 says, Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I know that many of you know these things already. It's good that I remind you of them. I think it is right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to him. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice from heaven, For we were with him on the holy mountain, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit." So he says this, I was on the mountain. I saw Jesus transfixed before my eyes. I heard the voice of the father speak about his son. This is my son. Do what he says. He says, we have something greater than that. We have the word of God. Because no prophecy in here was given simply by some person but as people were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And there's no proper understanding of this word that does not come from the Holy Spirit. A true and right understanding of God's word will lead you to what the Holy Spirit is saying. And he's pointing to the way. Blessed is the one who delights in the law of the Lord. Why? Is it so that we can earn our own righteousness through gritted teeth and hard work? No, that's impossible. It's so that we can know the righteousness that is freely given through Jesus Christ. Though he was perfectly righteous and earned the blessing, he freely freely gave the blessing to us and took our curse on the tree. That's the good news of the gospel. Though we do not earn his righteousness, though we do not earn his blessing, it's a free gift to anyone who believes or anyone who would come into the way, to anyone who would enter through the narrow gate and proclaim him as God, Master, Messiah. So what do we do with this? What's the to-do? Well, Second Peter has given us the to-do. In verse 5, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith 
with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter had faith at the offset, right? But if he had stayed there, he said, you're the Christ, you're the Lord. But he didn't stay there. He grew. Jesus helped him grow. Jesus pointed him to scripture. And as soon as Jesus died and was resurrected and went up to heaven, in the beginning of Acts, do you know what all the disciples did? They went into a room, they prayed, and they read their Bibles like crazy. And as soon as they came out, they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they taught their Bibles like crazy. And when they taught their Bibles, they said, you want to know who the fulfillment of all of these promises are? It's Jesus Christ, and you killed him, and he resurrected because he loves you. He has saved you. He's offering salvation to you. And the same is to you. You say, well, I've never entered into the narrow gate. I've never believed in Jesus. I've never entered into the way. I've always just tried to do my best. I'll have to say that I've just been blown around by the wind my whole life. Would you like to be planted? Would you like to be reborn? Would you like that promise to be true? Whatever you do, you prosper? No, that's not a promise to follow after sinful desires. That's a promise that God will remake your heart, that God will give you purposes to fulfill and then fulfill them. And that's a wonderful, that's better than your own desires because your own desires lead to, lead to death. But the desires of the Lord lead to eternal life and eternal joy. Not reluctantly so, but rejoicing in that. So, Peter started out with a little bit of faith, and he grew in that faith. He grew in his study of the word. And as, right as he's about to die, he knows that his death is coming. He says, all right, we're stirring you up by way of reminder. These are things you already know, but you have to remember them. Add to your faith virtue. Add to your knowledge. Add to your virtue knowledge. Where are you going to get knowledge? From his word. Add to your knowledge self-control. What are you going to do? Control yourself in what you've learned to do through his word. Persevere. Add to your self-control perseverance. What are you going to do? Persevere in the self-control of the knowledge that you've gained from his word. How are you going to be known as godly? Well, if you have conformed to the image of his word, conformed into the image of his son, so that you might bear that fruit of love and then keep bearing that fruit in season. So, that's my conclusion. Sorry we took a detour into First Peter there, but I'm not really sorry because <laughs> it was good. It was good. Um, so I'm going to invite you. I'm going to have a time of invitation. If you have never entered into the way, if you've never entered into the narrow gate, if you've never been born again and planted in Christ, what are you waiting for? To travel down the way of death a little bit longer, a little bit farther? It's not going to bring anything. I can promise you that. Because anything that you might gain from it will be completely undone. But to enter into the way of life, that's where you can have joy. That's where what you work will not be lost to vanity, but even if you 
gives someone a cup of water in the name of Christ. You have eternal reward just for a cup of water. That's what Jesus said. So, enter into the narrow gate. If you say, all right, I'm already in the way, what should I do? If you feel like you haven't been delighting in God's word, if you haven't been walking in God's word, come and I'll pray with you. Or one of our pastors will pray with you. That we could grow together, as it said in 1 Peter, that we'd love one another. That we'd be bound together in love. Let me pray. And then as Brian's singing, as the group is singing, um, respond as the Lord leads you. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you so much for the love that you've poured out to us. Thank you, Jesus, for taking the curse that we deserve and giving us the blessing that you deserve. I pray that we would all respond in faith to the news that's been proclaimed today, that you are the Lord and you love us so. In Jesus' name, amen.